Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, I welcome a truly prestigious guest, Dr. Sarolyn Mark. You know that she's one of the more renowned leaders in women's health when one of her starter credentials is that she served as senior scientific policy advisor to four presidents and senior medical advisor to Health and Human Services and NASA. Yeah, just that, just NASA. And if that's not enough, she helped lead the U.S. response to the Ebola outbreak in 2014 during the Obama administration and currently serves as senior advisor for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for their Strategic Investment Fund. Whew, I'm out of breath. Her book, Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe of Women's Health, is a recipe for making good decisions when shit happens. Those are my cliff notes, not hers. Anyway, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarolyn Mark. It's a blessing and a curse to be on stage a lot and then have to hear yourself afterwards. <laughs> We're our own worst critics. I think that's part of it. We are. We are. I'm excited to have you on the show, by the way. We're taping. We're live. Live in the sense of this is pre-taped and will be published after the fact. But I'm genuinely excited to have been connected with you and have you on the show to just chat about your, it's almost like an historic career. You've been doing so much work in women's health and just health in general for such a long time. Mm -hmm. You served under four presidents. You worked for health and human services and just NASA. That's it. Just, just NASA. I haven't gone to space camp, although I had the opportunity to work in the white house during the days of Ebola. So you didn't need to go to space to have true adventure. Then I was going to say like, like it's a very preeminent narrative these days on Ebola <laughs> versus how we're handling and everyone's watching the uh, that Dustin Hoffman movie from the 90s. They really went balls to the wall to make that the scariest film. It made, it made the Gwyneth Paltrow one look, look like almost innocent and tame. Yeah, you know, I think you're talking about the hot zone. And it was during a time when we were really focused on <clears throat> Ebola um, and hemorrhagic fevers. And that seems so terrifying because of the high mortality rates. But yet what we also realize is it depends on how transmissible an infection a virus is and how fast it spreads through a population. So, you know, you have that lethality and the transmissibility, and it's just a, a difficult equation. And what we have to do is just be on guard. Um, sometimes when you have these very, very uh, lethal agents like Ebola, it kills its host and then it can't be transmissible or it doesn't spread by just coughing, talking, breathing. So, you know, it's it's just being on guard and being aware. And I think, you know, for all of us, we're learning as we're going along because this is a new virus. Yeah, and I, I have, you know, a litany of questions that I know you you have the chance to read my completely I'm not a doctor layperson LinkedIn piece <laughs> yes, that I joined this, this stupid COVID club by accident with, with just having no symptoms. Mm -hmm. But I was curious, did you always want to be a doctor growing up? 
I did. I was always fascinated by it. There was a book uh, called The Making of a Surgeon, and I found it in my parents' bookshelf when I was a little girl. Instead of reading Nancy Drew, I read that. And it was about being a surgeon at Bellevue Hospital. And I thought that was so exciting. And then a few years later, I had the opportunity to go to New York. I grew up in Colorado, and I went to New York. It was during the 4th of July weekend. And I was just so in awe of of you know these big cities so I knew I had to end up in New York and about two three weeks later we landed on the moon and at that point I knew I wanted to be a doctor who practiced on the moon so you know having these kind of ambitious goals as a little girl and not being told you couldn't do it was really a great thing because keep in mind women weren't part of the space program until 1977 and didn't actually go into space till 1983 with Sally Wright's flight. Yes, I have to ask, when you came from, I, I love Denver, I've been in Colorado a million times, and, and I always appreciate how the altitude makes you have to drink a little less. But coming the other direction, <laughs> when did you first realize coming to New York that you could drink a little more? I'm just totally kidding. <laughs> I think I was 18 years old, because <laughs> at the time you could do that. I was up at Barnard, and uh, you had you know every restaurant and bar along the strip, so to speak, along Broadway. Um, but coming to New York from Colorado was really eye-opening. You know, I grew up in sort of this American graffiti type childhood, you know, you knew your neighbors and everybody knew you. And um, I remember my mom telling me, when you get on the subway, don't look at anyone, just look at people's shoes. So I think <laughs> I did that for the first year. Yes, 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 um, yes. But, but then, you know, my claim to fame is I lived in 18 apartments in New York City in nine years. So I got to know that city pretty well. I went to medical school there. I worked there. I actually worked in advertising between med school and college. Um, and just loved being there. Yeah, I noticed that. I, I was working in advertising and marketing, so I, I had brain cancer. I was supposed to be a film composer. Speaking of loving the, that, that Dustin Hoffman movie, I love the soundtrack to it. <laughs> but I got derailed, obviously, and I wound up working in advertising and marketing. So my question to you is, what's it like to delve into the Madison Avenue universe and then go back into medicine? Oh, I am so, so glad I did it because so much of what you do in medicine is really messaging. So, for example, when I was at HHS, we created a lot of educational programs, you know, health, public health programs, and you have to understand messaging. Um, and then a few years back, actually, it was during the days of Ebola while I was working at the White House and also working at NASA, I was the medical director for Ogilvy. So they oh, wow. were also working on, I mean, can you imagine everybody's working on Ebola, but from different vantage points? So one policy, one technology, one on messaging. So it was really powerful. All right. um, and, and what I often say today with what's happening now, it all comes down to crisis communication. And I think that's where some of the problems lie. You know, the messages need to be cogent. They need to be consistent with facts and they need to be coordinated among all messengers. Otherwise, people are afraid and they just fill in the void with their own fears. Well, I won't tell you I work for BBDO, your competition, but at the same time, <laughs> yes. I agree messaging is key. And, you know, there really is no trick to it except trying to know your audience. And I guess in, the, in these days with the country so polarized, it's very difficult to know who your audience yeah. is. And you used a very dirty word, which is facts. And I think that's a, a, a <laughs> there's a conjecturable component to that word today in vernacular. But, yes, yeah, science is science. And I, I just love I love when I talk to, to scientists and doctors and they they're very confident in always saying, I don't know. Yeah. And that's really important. You need to know what you don't know. And, you know, keep in mind in medicine and science, we're learning every minute, every day. I mean, just even with COVID-19, what we know today is very different than what happened yesterday or a week ago or three weeks ago. And it will be the same two months from now. 
But as long as you're following what you know based on what you have that has some evidence to it, um, people realize when things happen, it's not out of malignant intention. And I think that's really important. Uh, I think Obama said progress is not a straight line, but you started working in women's health a very long time ago. Would you, would you say that there has been a significant improvement in the visibility of women in health and the impact they're having? I think there has been. I mean, certainly there's a lot of effort from the government, both federal and state and local. Our advocates have played an important role. The American Medical Women's Association, for example, has been very, very strong champions in this area, the Society for Women's Health Research. I mean, I can name so many of them. They've really been front and center. We've also had our academic centers, and in industry has also played a very important role, too. I think the concern I've had over the last few years is sometimes as you take two steps forward, you go a step back. And we really tried to move women's health from that traditional bikini model, where you talk about breast health and maybe reproductive organs, into really looking at the entirety of your body, how everything is integrated, not just in your environment, but how health is integrated into every aspect of your life. And sometimes I see us going back to the old model. Perhaps it's just easier to do that, but I think it does everyone a disservice. And, you know, we're even seeing it with COVID-19. Um, you know, the PPE, the personal protective equipment doesn't fit women well. We've known that for years. I knew it back in 25 years ago. And yet now we're just starting to talk about it. So through my nonprofit, iGiant, which is an acronym for Impact of Gender and Sex on Innovation and Novel Technologies, we're an accelerator for gender and innovation across all sectors. And so we're trying to really raise awareness of just that issue right now, PPE, and working with AMNA and some of our academic partners. So we have many miles to go. And you know, when we improve the health of women, we improve the health of everyone. And it shouldn't be that you have to like rob from Paul to feed Mary. You know, everybody benefits when you understand sex and gender-based medicine. Yeah, I'm I'm a <clears throat> I'm a I'm a uh, a, a guilty bystander of not appreciating that uh, women factor into conversations only through one specific thing. I, I, I built a store, like an online e-commerce store selling mm -hmm. T-shirts when I launched my nonprofit. And I totally forgot that women wear T-shirts also. So I had to, <laughs> to talk to like my cousin and my, my you know, my, my aunt, like, oh, we should probably, you know, we was me yeah. at this point now. I, I totally get it. But I, I feel like it's a little more atrocious that that hasn't hit the fact that PPE doesn't fit women and it's already 2020. I know. And, you know, I think now we see how, first of all, important PPE is. We were just striving to get some, you know, get gloves and face masks. But now we have a little narrow window of opportunity. So um, iGiant partnership with Amwan, uh, Indiana University Center of Excellence, we're going to host our first roundtable next week, bringing together all these different stakeholders to begin discussing what do we need to do to design a better PPE, manufacture it, get it out there. Because, you know, once we get through this pandemic, there's going to be another event and another event. And, and it crosses not just in healthcare. I mean, our, our front line includes all essential workers, you know, people who are delivering our goods behind um, cash registers and providing services. They need to have PPE as well. And also all of us, as we take care of our loved ones, we need to have PPE that protects us. So I think, you know, just a little bit of thought can go a long way. Um, in my book, Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe of Women's Health, I talk about, um, for example, the space program. And we know, for example, spacesuits did not fit women properly. And there was a lot of discussion about that over the last year. So it doesn't just That was my bad. That was the t-shirt thing. I, I'm responsible mm -hmm. for that. My t-shirt thing was the, yeah. the spacesuits. I'm, I'm just going to take responsibility for all men right now. Well, 
<laughs> well, you have very strong shoulders to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, and it's it's men and women. It's everyone. I, I tend to take a, a non-binary approach. I think it's important to have a large umbrella. We just, you know, we're in the world of precision health. We're, we're tailoring medications and therapeutics to meet the needs of people. I think as we go through COVID, we're going to be doing that. And I just think we're in that world, you know, with 3D manufacturing, computer simulation, modeling, there's a lot we can do. And it's just, it's good. It makes good economic sense. Just good economic sense. If your consumer really benefits from the product you're putting out, they're going to want to come back. Yeah. And there's a bit of Nostradamus here. Your book came out eight years ago, and it's ever more timely even today about pandemics yeah. and medical myths and, and science and data, yeah. and that bad word facts yeah. that we really shouldn't be using. Uh, how how are you delving into? I mean, again, it's, if it's non-binary, do you have an approach to appreciating the the mental health challenges this is causing to so many people? Let alone the forced teaching we have to do at home with with those that have children. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up because we tend to just focus on the physical conditions, but the mental health aspects of this pandemic is really, really significant. You know, as you mentioned, you're at home. You're now trying to do your job. You may have children. You're trying to homeschool them. You're trying to take care of sick family members. I mean, the day has just run into the next. It's it's every day is Sunday, and it's like Groundhog's Day. And there's <laughs> yes. just no break. There's just no break. I mean, you, you know you're doing something big when you actually put, you know, I call it the big girl, big boy pants on to actually do a meeting, and you might have to walk around and someone can see you. Um, it's just very, very stressful. And I think we're now starting to pivot a bit more to that, making sure resources are available, having people talk about it. Um, in my book, I talk about, I have a chapter I call Sex, Chocolate, Wine, and Shopping. And, you know, it was sort of an ejacular way to describe that you have to really take advantage of life's pleasures around you every day so that you can stay balanced in times of stress. So maybe just that one glass of wine, not the bottle, maybe one piece of chocolate, not the entire bar or box. Um, when I say sex, it's really intimacy and in it, you know, now physical connection is, is really challenged, but it's connecting when you're speaking, whether by what we're doing, Skype or zoom or the phone, FaceTime, you know, really getting down into the, what someone is feeling, not just superficial stuff. And then I always think shopping's phenomenal. And fortunately you can do that everywhere and just do it so that you can afford it. Um, you know, in the olden days when you were actually able to go to stores and malls and some of our states are starting to do that, I always joked around that, you know, if you walk fast because there was a sale, you had aerobic conditioning, if you bought a lot of stuff, you had weight bearing, you're protecting your bones. And we tended to do it in groups. And we know as, as human beings, when we're in groups, our hormone levels change. So the good hormone, the oxytocin or natural endorphins go up, cortisol levels, that stress hormone goes down. So we have health benefits. Um, so it's just really, really key in the midst of everything that, you know, we look at what's around us and where we can get some pleasure, whether it's smelling a rose and, and doing like what you and I are doing today. I love the fact that we're speaking and it just makes the day being able to talk to you. My, my daughter, I have twins, boy and a girl. My daughter watches a, a YouTube channel called Kids Science Show. And she's, I, I think she's going to be like a mini, a sign. There's, there's something in her. I'm, I'm being a dad now. <laughs> I'm forecasting her future, of course, for her. And sure. <clears throat> she watched an episode of the, of the, the YouTube channel that talked about how giving hugs, like, makes you better. Yeah. And just that simple act of not having physical human interaction on a daily basis. I miss my dad. I miss my mom. I mean, my first world problems pale in comparison to the recognizing yeah. what else is happening around the world. But this notion of just physical human contact, social interaction, we're social creatures by 
by uh, by just evolutionary biology, right? Yeah, we are. I mean, you look at our primates, they do that as well. All animals do that, basically. And, you know, you look at some of the studies of children who were orphans in Eastern Europe, they failed to thrive. They were not hugged when they were growing, growing up. Um, we just need it. There's something really, um, for lack of a better word, medicinal healing um, to be able to touch someone, to touch their hand. Um, the other thing that's important is looking into people's eyes. And even though we're doing, you know, our virtual technology now and and using all the tools that we have in front of us, it's still just not the same. You you can't we we watch people. That's how we monitor the world around us. And we mimic the behavior and not being able to do that, I think, is really difficult as well. It's very isolating. So we're gonna have to develop some better tools. And I think, you know, this has been a wake-up call for us to do it. I've observed something very interesting, and, and if you share the sentiment, agree with me, or just tell me I'm an idiot, that every time I go out, like food shopping, like spaces where you, you have to go, essential services, mm -hmm. you know, I go to Stop and Shop or wherever I go food shopping, and, and everyone's wearing a mask, which is good. They, I'm glad they just mm -hmm. don't let you in the door without a mask, and that's creating all mm -hmm. of the ridiculous controversy these days. But <laughs> but I got to be honest with you, like, I feel like people wearing masks, uh, they almost, it's like, um, an unconscious silencing of yourself. Like you feel like you can't even talk to other people and you can't say hello because you don't see your mouth. Are you sensing that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you bring that up. I've, I've traveled all over the world, been to every continent and spent a bit of time in Asia. And I was in Asia after SARS outbreak and it was during their avian influenza epidemic and everybody's wearing face masks and, and they still do to this day. And I always found it unnerving. First of all, to me, it was somebody wore a face mask when you were going in the operating room or you were going to do a procedure or the patient was immunocompromised. So it already had that connotation. Um, and now I see it almost like a red light, like don't get near me, keep your six feet of distance. So perhaps that's a good thing because it's a good reminder. Right. Um, but we're going to, I think what's going to happen is we're going to rewire our neurons where it's just going to become acceptable just going to be like when we go through um, a checkpoint in the airport and take off our shoes. We don't, you know, get too stressed out about that anymore. We get frustrated because it slows us down, but we just expect it. And I think we're eventually going to get there. Um, I think what we haven't done a good job is about messaging. That's why I think um, a lot of people are afraid or don't want to wear masks because they don't see the value. So once we do better messaging, that may help. And, and your point about how we just keep to ourselves, we're in still the twilight years of this right now. I think um, the mask is a reminder that somebody may be able to infect us. So we're protecting ourselves. So notwithstanding the response to the epidemic and the pandemic based on states and countries, whatnot, what are the most critical learnings, you know, past is future? I, I can't. I'm messing up metaphors at this point, but past is <laughs> prologue. There we go. You know, mm -hmm. if there are any one or two specific takeaways on like the human adaptation socially, anthropologically based on a situation like this, I mean, we're not going to compare this to Philly and the flu hundred years ago in mm. modern society. Do we have any precedents we can learn from on exactly what you just talked about? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. I think in my social isolation and distancing, I've been able to have some time to quiet my mind and, and think about stuff that I've gone through. And, and even my father, I lost my dad about three years ago. He was a Holocaust survivor as a child in four concentration camps. 
and made his way to the States, truly a remarkable life. And he would tell some of his stories. And I wish he was here with us because I know he'd have so many powerful lessons to teach us. So ironically, you know, the folks who are so vulnerable right now, we're losing. And yet they have so much wisdom that I know they would want to share with us. Um, I think for us, we really haven't had anything this restrictive in our existence, in our modern time. Um, you know, we've been pretty fortunate. You know, we've never really had a tr other, like the Civil War war spot here where we had to hunker down. Um, and I think we're having a wake-up call to how the rest of the world's been living. Um, I do remember during the Cold War, and I was a little girl during the time, and we used to do duck and cover drills. Oh, yes. I remember those. Remember we had that? shelter drills, and, yes. Yeah. And, you know, schools, I remember my elementary school had like a one of those signals, one of those signs that it was a bomb shelter. Right. And, you know, I lived in the back door of NORAD. Um and I, you know, I tend to laugh now as if, you know, getting down and putting your head between your knees was really going to protect you from a nuclear blast. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, Good old Colorado uh, Springs is the defender yeah, of, of the country. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that was sort of what I grew up in. And I think some people had bomb shelters and they're probably wishing they still had them now so they could go down and hide away for a year or two. Um, but other than that, you know, we've been pretty lucky. Lewis Black did a great bit in his either Red, White, and Screwed or Back in Black uh, like 10 years ago during the Bush administration when they had the color codes. But he talked about how the duck and cover was obviously nothing more than just like a little psyops to, to make people feel less horrible because <laughs> exactly. you're hiding under kindling basically at your school. And that doesn't really do anything when the giant fireball comes and destroys the whole land. So I just I just found that interesting that you, we talk, I haven't said duck and cover shovel drills since I was like in grade school. So I know it, you know it's funny you brought up this whole thing during after 9/11. I wrote about it in my book because I thought it was really a powerful moment. Um, the day that we issued a guidance that we should put duct tape and stay in our homes because yeah. we were worried about <laughs> God, biological yes. warfare. I was actually leaving that day for Antarctica. I think I was one of the last flights out of D.C. before a massive blizzard hit. And I was so glad to get out of there. And I was just thinking, you know, you put plastic and duct tape around you, you're going to suffocate yourself. Right. Better just sit on your couch, you know, at that time, watch a video, have some wine and chocolate and be with somebody you cared about. Um, but it, we felt like we had to give the public something to do. And it also kind of primed the pump to be getting them ready to go to war. I agree. Uh, so I'm popping my hydrochloroquine in Tic Tac form these days, but I was hoping you could just talk <laughs> briefly about disinformation in this age. Mm -hmm. And and one of my favorite terms to use over the years is bell curve. There's always going to be a bell curve for something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I, Twitter is a great example because 95 percent of the noise is made by 5 percent of the people. Do you, do you find that to be corollary to today's narrative? Yeah, I, I mean, I just think some things don't change often. You know, the squeaky, what is that thing about the squeaky wheel? Gets, gets the oil. Some, yeah, the oil, yeah. Um, I Again, in my book, I have this chapter called Old Wise Tales, you know, and other myths. And usually in something that's being shared, there's some element of truth, which makes it really difficult to discern what is not truth and what is just made up stuff. And I think that's what we're tending to see here a little bit as well. And then you put the overcast of fear and people just not feeling like they, they feel helpless. So, you know, facts are not necessarily facts. Um, they get latched onto. And then when new information comes, it's hard to get people to realize there's new information. 
So, you know, I, I just if we can talk about hydroxychloroquine for just a second. Of course. You know, Our favorite um, syllables of the week. <laughs> yes. So it's a big word. You could win in the spelling bee now. Yes. And I've often been asked about it during a lot of uh, media interviews over the last few weeks. And it's, you know, it's been an interesting topic because um, when you look at drugs and therapeutics, you got to look at safety and efficacy. But the other thing you have to look at is what is the dose being used? How is it administered? When is it being administered? And who is it being administered to? So it's not this one size fits all approach. So, you know, I think it's good with this drug that FDA put out only to be used really in hospital settings because there are serious side effects. There's cardiac arrhythmias, hematologic side effects, um, behavioral side effects, eye side effects. I mean, really the whole body can be impacted. There's no perfect drug out there. Um, and also to be done in, in studies, in controlled studies. So I believe the NIH is conducting a study right now looking at it being used in an earlier phase, like when you've just been diagnosed. I don't know about any studies about prevention, primarily because it has a lot of side effects in people. And you don't know if you're going to be the one. And you also have to check for it. So I'll just give a drug and let it go. So I just think that people just need to slow down. The best drug that we have, the most important magic bullet we have is really our own immune systems and what we can do to help our immune systems. And again, you know, that's what I talk about in the book, exercise, sleep, um, nutrition as best as you can, connecting on whatever level you can, not smoking, not vaping, um, and trying to be aware of how you are in your environment. You know, are you connecting with others? Are you helping others? Back with our guest after the break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. There was a, so I worked in young adult, adolescent young adult cancer uh, for 15, 16 mm -hmm. years. And, and that's always terrible because you're looking at a tiny fraction of a larger population mm -hmm. that happens to get cancer. And then The Guardian came out with an article many, many years ago, very polarizing. It just said that uh, good luck is when bad luck goes right. And that, that's all we're dependent on in a random sea of chaos. And that cancer is just going to happen no matter what you do. And, and then I kind of picked up mm -hmm. on that there's no such thing as prevention except pet ownership. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned you have a dog. I've chose to not have a dog. Right. I'm not going to be a pet owner. I've prevented being a pet owner. So where are we looking now in this, in this age of so much information and I, I, confirmation bias, just living and breathing in everyone's id and ego every single day? 
where do you recommend, and this might be just an obvious question for our listeners, but where would you recommend people go to get honest, daily, digestible, like high school level facts on what to believe? Well, and again, the media has certainly, I think in some respects, done a good job as long as it's balanced and it's from scientists and physicians and you know researchers who are actually um, immersed in it and, and have the data and, and also say what they don't know. Um, I think there are a lot of wonderful academic centers that are putting out information that's designed for the public to appreciate. Um, when I worked in government, we had a lot of wonderful sites available, and we tried to get it down to a level that you know any educational level could value. Um, you know, when you look at something, look to see who's funded it, see if there might be some element of bias in it. Um, and you know, keep in mind that someone can look at the same picture. Five people can look at the same picture and see five different views. So, you know, you, you have to, you know, read as much as you can and talk to people. I think the thing I have a challenging time with is this anecdotal stuff, um, because you don't know how much of it is just due to the placebo effect, just sort of random. Right. You know, if you know you're doing something, you're automatically changing how your immune system is operating. You know, if you think, like you said, Tic Tacs and hydroxychloroquine, if you didn't know that it was just a tic-tac, you might think you're taking an active ingredient. Right, exactly. Um, and, and that rewires your brain. It changes your immune system. It changes your hormonal profiles. So, you know, we have to be really cautious about that. Yeah, and, and again, what I wrote about in my LinkedIn article is very tantamount to, like, there's nothing but anecdotes at this point, and it's really hard to trust or know where the risk the risk model is for just conscious decision-making objectivity when you're a regular person. Uh, I, I just wanted to feel free to tell me you're not a virologist or an epidemiologist when I ask you these questions, but they are very tangible and tantamount to a lot of the stuff you've been talking about recently on, on the news is that, um, you know, I, I hate these phrases, but it's kind of a hard truth to digest. Where are we living in the moral, the moral, I guess, let me start that over. Where mm -hmm. are we living uh, on the bridge between like acceptable loss and moral quality in terms of we flatten the curve, but people are going to die. Yeah. And what do we do? Yeah, that's such an important question. And a lot of us um, on the front lines and and policy have been talking about that. I, I had to give a presentation last night for AMWA's uh, briefing with um, leaders, health leaders from across the globe. They they have a series of events each month where they talk about what each country is doing. And I was presenting the U.S. perspective, and and I said, you know, a month ago, these were the numbers, and today these are the numbers. We basically have doubled our mortality. And I think two months ago, if I had said to you that we might be reaching a hundred thousand people dead next week we would have been aghast. And it's almost like we've become immune, that it's become just something we accept, we, we normalize it. Um, it's a very difficult question because to each individual, every loss is so, so important. And especially if it could be prevented. Um, I think when we come into a time when we actually have to limit our resources and ration services, I mean, there was that big discussion, who's gonna get the vent, when we didn't know if we were gonna have enough vents to go around. Right. Um, and that makes it really difficult because what is the value of a human being to the family, to the individual, to the community, to society at large? Um, and those are huge questions. I think that what we have to do is honor everybody to the best of our abilities. And 
and you know, when we come down to a time, if we do come down to a time where we have to talk about limiting care, limiting resources, that you actually have a team involved so that one's value isn't just a set of numbers determined by one individual at one moment in time. Because keep in mind, when you come into a hospital, you look horrific. You look awful. You're not well. But that doesn't indicate who you may have been all the other days and what you've been doing and how you've been able to think and contribute. So I think we, we have to really look at the entirety of an individual's life. Yeah, it's just a very difficult conversation to have. You know, this is, I mean, again, we could take away the how it happened and why it happened and whatever, but this is, this is evolution. This is biology. This is, this is just life on earth and mm -hmm. shit's going to happen. The question is we're now more modern, technically savvy, civilized to, to, to a large extent. And, what do we do to exactly that? But if our goal, if the flat goal, if we can just schoolhouse rock this down with the flat, I keep saying flat, <laughs> we want to flatten the curve. <laughs> but if that's our, if that's our goal is to just never overwhelm the health system, but just tolerate acceptable hospitalizations yeah. and have enough yeah. equipment to prevent death as much as possible. Of course, there is equipment there. I was, I was reading many people who died were just because the hospital didn't have the equipment. So, have we reached the point, this is all obviously rhetorical and metaphorical, you know, mm -hmm. if our goal is simply to just never overwhelm the health system, how can we deflate the balloon to get back to normal in a reasonable way? And Andy Slavitt's uh, open safely hashtag, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his and, and what he's mm -hmm. put it together. What does that really mean? Yeah, so how do you define normality in the, in the age of COVID? Um, and it's definitely different. Um, Yes, it was flattening the curve. We didn't want to overwhelm our system. So what we've done is, you know, we, we have the virus among us. We're trying to put out hot spots as they happen. That was why folks were really concerned about opening before there had been a two-week period where there was really a downward trend so that you minimize the, the amount of transmissibility in the population because, you know, if you have everybody mingling and happy to be out and about, you may quickly climb again. Um, the other thing I think we have to remember is that we saw these outbreaks on our coasts, on the West Coast and East Coast, predominantly in the first part of this pandemic, and they have extraordinary medical care. I, you know, I went to medical school in New York. I trained at UCSF, at the University of California, San Francisco. I was at the castles in the sky where medical care, extreme medical care is just second nature. But you go into other parts of the country, you may not even have the vent may not even have enough PPE. You may not have the, the staff. So that's what really concerns me and keeps me up at night right now is the virus has migrated across the United States. You know, we're seeing it in meatpacking plants, certainly in prisons, our nursing facilities, our long-term care facilities. Um, it's being spread across. And a lot of these communities don't have that same robust, vigorous type of medical care. They don't have those resources. So what's going to happen next? And I worry about that because you look at some of these folks that have come out of the hospital and they've been there 50, 60 days. I mean, it's unheard of in most situations. Being on a vent for a month, we're used to having people on a vent for a few days. Um, you, know, you know, using ECMO, using continuous dialysis. It's just, it's extraordinary stuff. So this isn't just bread and butter medicine that has kept people alive. So I, I want to clear up some obvious questions I have. It's just a citizen who happened to have asymptomatic COVID. I tested positive twice. My wife and my kids tested negative twice. It makes no sense. But at the end of the day, 
what is a test, you know, (laughs) and we're now learning that uh, some of the swab tests are more Mm -hmm. inaccurate, but some of them are better inaccurate. And then because the FDA is doing emergency authorization, some are not even remotely cleared, let alone approved. But it looks like Merck and uh, at least here, uh, Quest Diagnostics and Abbott are leading the way. What's your take? All right. So I actually had the opposite of what you had. I believe I had symptoms. I think I got infected at a medical conference at a convention center here in D.C. And uh, symptoms were not horrific. You know, it was a dry cough. Um, I believe I had a fever once I got a thermometer. I definitely demonstrated that. And I kind of knew something was wrong when I had all the windows open in my house and my dog was burrowed under the dirty clothes just to try to stay warm. Um, And I was so hot. Um, and again, absolute fatigue. We're trying to get up to take a shower. I remember going to go do an interview and just having to take a shower was just extraordinary amount of energy being expended to do that. Um, so when I finally got tested, which was probably about two weeks post-exposure, one week into the development of symptoms, I came back negative, absolutely shocked. And I thought, great, now I can have everybody over at the house. I, you know, I'd been quarantined. Um, in isolation, actually. And then I got a call by the Department of Health that evening. No, we need you to continue to do a full 14 days. We're not really, we're not certain about this test. And, you know, that was really eye-opening. So what we've learned is that sometimes these tests may only be 50 to 60% sensitive. That's not a great number. The uh, antibody tests, um, kind of the Wild West has been used to describe it. There's hundreds out there. Maybe only a handful might be somewhat accurate. Um, And let me talk about this for a minute. So when you have a test diagnostic, if you have the virus, you want it to be picked up. And if you don't have it, you don't want it to show that it's positive. So that's important. And then when you have antibodies, the same thing, where if you don't have them, great, show that. You know, don't pick up that you had another coronavirus like the common cold that could complicate the matter, where it's picking up positive and you actually didn't have COVID-19. Or... Um, if you did have it and it's not picking it up, that's a problem too. The other thing with antibody tests is we don't know the titers, we don't know what type of antibodies, and we don't know the duration, how long those antibodies are going to last to really determine whether you're going to be immune from further infection, from reinfection. So we're kind of in the twilight years. You know, early on we had problems just getting a test out. There was contamination in the CDC uh, facility, and then there was just some lag by FDA getting some of our public health and academic centers and, pri- and public uh, private centers up and running. So now there was sort of the other swing of the curve to to sort of have large numbers of emergency use authorization and not that rigor and assuring that they do what they do. I think right now they're giving us a guide. They're not perfect. And, you know, you, you got to look at the patient. You got to look at what you have. What you brought up is very important, the pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic carriers. And that's why we're telling people to do what they're doing. You know, at least six feet, hand hygiene, wearing face coverings. These are the best things that we can do at the moment. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I can only laugh. Again, as not a doctor, I can only laugh at this, having, having, I'm fortunate to know a lot of medical experts and professionals and virologists and whatnot. And, and the fact that I, I, I got like no consistent answer from anyone was good right. because that's what science should be. But right. at the same time, I would ask you, is there a least worst scenario where at scale we know that enough people have whatever kind of antibodies 
that it's safe to do something. All right. So there's been a lot of banter about the herd effect. That's generally, we talk about that often, for example, with influenza. Remember, this is the first coronavirus pandemic. So we're learning as we're going along right. here. Different virus. Um, and we tend to think about 60 or 70% of the population needs to have been infected and developed appropriate antibodies or have been vaccinated and have developed appropriate antibodies to the vaccination so that those who um, haven't been vaccinated or who really can't get infected because they have so many comorbid conditions, you know, they're very, very vulnerable, will be protected. You kind of create that, that wall around them. So we're a long way away from that. We think right. we're probably about less than 1% of the population, but we don't even know, again, because of that issue of asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic folks and just getting the testing out there, we just don't know. But we can assume um, by, you know, how early on in this that we are in the pandemic. So we have a ways to go. I think, you know, going back to what we earlier talked about, um, I just think it's going to become second nature now. I know for myself, when I'm out and about, and I, I haven't gone into shops or stores or anything, DC still in lockdown, and we'll be that way till June 8th. But when I'm taking a walk, I call it my daily constitution as if I'm like a thousand years old. Um, and I see people <laughs> not wearing All is forgiven. a mask. Thank you. Not wearing a mask or a face covering. I actually internally am angry because I'm wearing it to protect them. I want them to protect me too. Right. Yeah. I, here in New York, I'm surprised at how compliant. I mean, this is a tough city. We're not like coastal elites. Mm -hmm. We're like real people that just are expecting shit to happen any day of any minute of any hour. <laughs> and and I'm looking around. Yeah, yeah. they're kind of going to the beaches and not supposed to. But they're all like like tribalism. They're all like they, they're owning their space and they're being respectful. And I, I think people are realizing that, you know, outdoors, it spreads a lot less. If it's windy, it's a little less. If it's humid, it's a lot less. And we're learning these, these basic, almost like meteorology is helping us make better objective decisions, but nearly everyone's wearing a mask. And now it's just like a sign of courtesy. If I see someone not yeah. wearing one, I kind of leer a little bit. Yeah. And, and I don't know if yeah. judgmentalism is, is now a thing with mm -hmm. masks. Yeah, you know, I I just, I once said in an interview that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is ingrained in most of the DNA of most Americans. And sometimes you have to limit your, or modify your liberties so that you can live and pursue happiness. And, you know, this isn't going to be permanent, and it's really not that onerous, and it is common courtesy, and it's the best that we're able to do at the moment. If we learn otherwise, then we'll adapt. Dr. Sarah Mark, uh, world-renowned leader in women's <laughs> health, endocrinologist, geriatrician, women's health specialist. Her book, Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe on Women's Health, still flying off the bookshelves eight years later, wherever books are sold. A litany of incredible accomplishments that we'll put in a link in the episode description, but to be continued, I would thoroughly enjoy continuing this conversation. I would too. It's really a pleasure to speak to you and, and to, you know, discuss issues that we're dealing with every day and, and we're, we're going to be in a new world. And so we need to continue the dialogue and conversation. So thank you for doing that for all of us. Yes. And final thought, Tic Tac, not a sponsor. Thanks folks. <laughs> We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. 
Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.